0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and
1: debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive of the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. To mark Earth Day 2021, we've gathered a fantastic panel of speakers to explore a fascinating part of the debate about how we best define and address our big climate and environmental challenges. If those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event, you're welcome to do so on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Earth Day or in our YouTube chat. So let me briefly introduce the panel before we get started. So Partha Dasgupta is the Frank Ramsey Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Cambridge, a Fellow at St John's College, Cambridge, and a visiting Professor at the New College of the Humanities, London. He led the Independent Government Commission Dasgupta Review into the Economics of Biodiversity, published earlier this year, which we'll be exploring today. I'm going to hand over to Partha in a minute to tell us more But in a nutshell, the review calls for changes in how we think, act and measure economic success to protect and enhance our prosperity and the natural world by drawing links between our economies and our ecology. There's a huge amount in here for our panel to discuss, so I'm looking forward to hearing all your thoughts. We'll hear also from Jane Davidson. Jane is Pro Vice Chancellor Emeritus at University of Wales Trinity St David, and Chair of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission's Welsh Inquiry. Jane is former Welsh Minister for Environment and Sustainability and is a patron of the Chartered Institute of Ecologists and Environmental Managers. And she was also one of the architects of Wales's commitment to future generations. Gretchen Daly is Bing Professor of Environmental Science in the Department of Biology at Stanford University, the Director of the Centre for Conservation Biology at Stanford and senior fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. She's co-founder and faculty director of the Stanford Natural Capital Project, a global partnership aiming to integrate the values of nature into policy, planning, and finance. So we have a brilliant panel ready to discuss some of the findings and recommendations in the Deskopter review and the questions that it surfaces. And we're particularly interested in exploring this question of how applying an economic lens to the value of nature can be consistent with creating a culture that values and protects the natural world. So, Pastor, perhaps we could start off with you. The review frames nature as an asset and tells us we should think about biodiversity loss as an asset management problem. Can you begin by unpacking what you mean by that? Yes, of course, thank you very much. Uh, Nature is an asset, we call it an
0: asset because she is an asset. She's our greatest asset. We are part of it, we are embedded in it, and we see it all around us. It affects every moment of our life from start to finish. So that's not controversial, that cannot be controversial. The review starts by observing that And then proceeds to ask why we have made such a mess of it. What are the forces at work that has made us think either that it's not important or that it's an infinite supply so we can do anything we like with it and it won't be exhausted. That's at the heart of the problem as the review sees it. And it requires of us to understand nature as a set of processes, embedding, embodying a set of processes is extremely complicated and the huge numbers of them uh, varying in speed uh, and spatial extent and entangled with one another. And so just as if you own a motor car, you would like somebody to know how it op- operates, what happens if it breaks down, what are the mechanisms involved in its driving? You would imagine that we should spend a good deal of our lives trying to understand what's around us and how the processes are shaping our lives. So the review explores that, which is why it invokes an enormous quantity of ecology, because ecology and economics are absolutely tied up with one another, even though we don't acknowledge that.
1: And how do you respond to objections that have been posed to this language of assets, asset management, natural capital. There is a view that says that in some ways this kind of legitimizes a financialized model of everything and that it is precisely that financialization of everything that has contributed to some of our climate problems in the first place. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, I think there's an enormous amount of misunderstanding here and probably understandable. Uh, Because if you're not an economist, you immediately interpret the the term price into some monetary object that immediately goes into the bowels of financial capital. And we tend, at least well-brought-up people, tend to feel that at least on Sundays you shouldn't be thinking that way. Um, But the review thinks of nature as a real asset, we are always talking in terms of real goods, like tables, chairs, these are manufactured assets. We produce them, but we are using nature's material to produce them with our ingenuity and our sweat. And when we educate ourselves, we are building ourselves up. We get creating greater um, value as assets, human capital, we call it. Produced capital and human capital are bread and butter material for economics and uh the review brings nature into it recognizing that it's she's finite in size and although fairly robust uh, uh can be broken down beyond repair with to the extent that we are our numbers and our abilities and enable us to do that and we shouldn't do it and the way we uh, the review approaches it, is to recognize that all societies and all people regard nature as an asset. The farmer does, the fisherman does, the, uh, the merchant does, you name it. It's only the intellectual who doesn't, because he doesn't have to use or she doesn't have to use his or her sweat in producing things, producing ideas, yes. but So it's not, it's not an unusual idea. It is very much a commodity. Uh, it has value as a source of product, what we call use value. But of course, I think what people who worry about the economics of nature, worry about the fact that we may be overlooking the fact that it also has non-use value. That is, many of us regard all cultures have some aspects of nature as sacred. That's perfectly right. Uh, And there's no conflict between the notion that aspects of it are usable. And there will be portions of it which we would keep absolutely as non-negotiable. It cannot be used for any other purposes. All this is very much in line with the review. So I hope this misunderstanding will be quelled.
1: So Gretchen, turning to you, tell me what do you think are the kind of strengths but also the potential pitfalls of an attempt to apply... Kind of economic modeling and notions of assets and capital to nature?
2: It's a good question. And this matter of language, how we um, think about nature and how we describe nature in our thinking and in our decision making, um, it's important to develop a deeper under- and more shared understanding of that. So um, on the one hand, the problem today is as Partha has said, we tend to think about nature either as being infinitely valuable, being imbued with these um, levels of beauty and spiritual qualities that make destroying nature unethical. And um, it, it, at the other extreme, we tend to think about nature as something that um, expendable when it comes to um, planning our lives, planning our villages, our agriculture, our farmland, our um, growth as a country. We see nature as a type of um, and uh, part of the landscape that's vacant, that's not being used and not valuable. So in decision-making, which is where um, ultimately, we need to go where we need to change our thinking and recognize our utter dependence on nature day to day from breakfast through sunset. We are dependent on nature for um, almost every aspect of our well-being. And yet we don't have um, a shared language for bringing this dependence and our impacts on nature into our day-to-day decision-making. And the context in which so many decisions are made is a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. It's, you know, there are many things that um, we aim to do as a society, investing in things that are important to us, and yet nature features as a zero in most of that um, kind of decision-making. So there's a real pitfall to um, not accounting for nature, and that's what we're aiming to um, shift now. But, but the shift that we need is, is a much deeper cultural shift that recognizes our intimate connections on nature, whether it's in having a morning coffee and knowing that it was little bees in the tropics that helped produce that coffee by pollinating it. And that those tree, uh, bees depend on rainforest, that and they can fly, you know, only so far from the rainforest where they live year-round, and come out into coffee for the one week in which coffee farms bloom to service um, those blossoms and make um, the coffee harvest possible. Um, until we start illuminating all these connections that people have with nature. It'll be um, really difficult to factor into our decision-making in a clear way to see clearly what we need for pollination, for purification of our water, for protecting us from climate impacts like flood and drought, for maintaining our mental health and physical health, especially through trying times such as the pandemic. And and all of that kind of um, understanding of our dependence on nature requires in many ways um, taking an economic and a system-wide view um, to let nature sort of measure up and get into the um, thinking and decision-making that we're making about about our future, about our planning, about um, how much we need, where we need to protect and restore it, how to integrate nature more and more into our livelihoods in a clear way, and how to track progress in um, the way we account for nature in decisions.
1: So Jane, turning to you, as a former politician and policymaker yourself, someone who still advises policymakers. Do you think that understanding nature as an asset is something which can help to shift the balance in terms of decision making? Your work on future generations is an attempt, as it were, to bring the future into the present, a similar kind of economic challenge. So what do you think are the strengths and, and challenges about this kind of approach?
3: Thanks. Um, that's, a, that's a that's a really um, challenging question, and and partly it's because um, I think it was back in the uh, in in two thousand and ten I got very involved in the previous Teb review um, as a minister uh, for in the environment in Wales, and I was very excited by the idea that if we could find a way of making Um, nature of value to people who didn't value nature (laughs) Um, so it wasn't for me something about all people and all nature it was very much about that there are a set of people who thought they had the right to extract and despite there being many many years of evidence I mean I was reminded of um, uh, Donella Meadows book on limits to growth you know the first one back in 1972, um, which was telling us then that we lived within environmental limits. And she was surprised at the time that that politicians were not listening to that evidence. And when I became a a, a politician, I, I made the wrong assumption as well. I assumed that when you had very strong evidence to tell you that something was negative, that something was going to affect not only you and your family, but your country, uh, your world, that actually politicians would uh, act jointly on it. And I remember going to four of the um, COP meetings uh, mostly with the view that, that that could be done. And what you find is that evidence alone is not enough It's really strong, but it's about how you change the discourse and how you change the discourse to recognize different kinds of values thinking. And so I understood that there were mechanisms um, and I'm very excited about uh, in both your work about mechanisms that can potentially change the metrics. Um, You know, whether or not we uh, move to uh, or how we move away from GDP is absolutely critical. Because when somebody explained to me that um, if we burnt my house down tonight, we would improve my area's GDP because of rebuilding it again tomorrow. It seems such a fundamentally stupid mechanism that you wonder why it has ever been supported. And then you realise that actually changing systems without changing the values behind the systems is actually one of the most critically different things. So just for, for colleagues, I mean, what, what we tried to do in Wales um, through the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act was change the values behind the decision making. Because for me, I'm really interested in, in, in how decisions are made. And we did that by suggesting that if everybody thought long-term and was required in the public sector to think long-term to make decisions in the interests of current and future generations, uh, but actually it would change decision-making and the law explicitly talks about environmental limits, um, it explicitly talks about climate change, it explicitly links areas I know you're both interested in the context of public health and planetary health and mental health Um, and communities and language identity and the kind of core elements that make up the sort of body politic. Now, Wales is only a small country, so almost like Costa Rica, it has the opportunity to demonstrate a different way of doing things. But the big question is whether or not the activities that go on in a small country, redefining the debate will have the kind of influence that potentially changing the notion of what an asset is for the financial markets in the world could have, or can those things go alongside each other? Because I'm still really interested in the idea of that notion of nature as an asset Although I fundamentally subscribe to that first principle of the First Earth Summit, that humans have the right to live in harmony with nature. We are part of nature. Ecology, the knowledge of the planet home, comes before economy, the study of the planet home.
1: Thank you, Jane. I mean, of there's so much to cover in your report. And by the way, I strongly encourage people to read the 600-page version or the 100-page uh, of, of version. But let, let's move on to a, a different kind of an important concept, which is the concept of impact inequality, because this is a report about economics, it's a report about ecology, but it's also a report about society and the way in which different countries, different people, different lifestyles have very different kinds of impacts on our environment. Tell us a bit more, Partha, about this kind of notion of impact inequality. Well, the idea here is that um, any bit of nature,
0: could be a small ecosystem, could be a bio, could be the whole biosphere, doesn't make any difference as to conceptual. It's supplying us with goods and services on a regular basis. Uh, the presumption is here, and the presumption is correct, that nature is, broadly speaking, a self-regenerative entity. The seasons are a very good marker of that. We're now seeing a regeneration in the Northern Hemisphere of of the green planet. So it's providing a huge number of services and goods. Many of the, and Gretchen spoke to it, of course, but many of these services are invisible and they're silent in the way they provide the services. Uh, Think of what's going on under our feet, in the soils. Uh, Enormous amounts of chemistry is at work. Enormous amounts of services provided to us, but we don't see it, we don't observe it. So you don't record it. Mm -hmm. And I want to come closer to Jane on this because, if we always think of the biosphere, we lose track because it's too large and a very distant horizon seems infinitely away, far away. It's better to start doing economics at the local level, and that's what the review does. So you can see the outlines of where you are and what you can grapple with, what you see. Now we are take drawing on this these services we are making use of these services even when we breathe. Never mind producing you know, shirts and shoes and building material. Even when we breathe and eat, we're taking material and uh, out of the uh, nature, converting it and then plowing it back. That's extremely important. We mustn't forget that we're also dumping stuff back into earth, which has to be reorganized. In the sense, nature does it for us unless we stretch it beyond its limits. So the question arises, is the amount that we are taking out on an annual basis, let's suppose our unit of time is a year, just for the sake of argument, I began with the seasons, so we may as well do that. Is the amount that we are taking out and then putting back in, in other words, the strain that we are imposing on, 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 on our local neighborhood, exceed or is less than its natural regeneration rate? Rate, which is its ability to cope with what you're taking out. The impact inequality is a relationship between demand and supply. Now I'm using economic reasoning, but that's exactly right. Nature is supply, and we are making demands on it. If the demand exceeds the supply, nature diminishes in quality or quantity or both. If you look at extractive services, it's quantity, but of course quality is equally important, perhaps even more important. Okay, so in some. And the impact inequality, as of now, says that over the past 70 years or so, humanity as a whole has been demanding more than Mother nature can supply. So that we're building more and more, greater and greater pressure on the biosphere. And she responds by groaning, essentially. Climate, global climate change is, of course, one manifestation of it, but there are many others. This is, we are just hooked on global climate change because it's there on the agenda now. But that's one of the, climate regulation is one of the services the biosphere is offering. There's a whole host of others, and Gretchen alluded to to them. And one by one, we are, and it's one important thing, and this is an economic argument, is that these services, the basic services, the fundamental services nature are complementary to one another. They're not substitutes. So if you start messing around with one of them enough, the others will collapse too. It's like a house of cards, except that of course nature is not quite like cards. I mean, it's more robust than that. But on the other hand, we're also even more robust now than we were ever before because we are smart. We have many of us. We've got the equipment and talent to destroy nature if we want to. And we're doing that. That's the in, impact inequality. It's the relationship between the demand and supply, and the inequality is that demand exceeds supply at the moment, so therefore, it's Simple example, think of a fishery. There's a lake, and there is a species of fish, simplest case. And if it's left alone, the fishery reaches a something like a state in which the growth rate is net zero. Birth rate exceeds the death rate, if you like, of the population, with fluctuations, of course. In comes the human uh, the fishermen, and they start taking fish out. But of course, the stock will decline initially, goes that saying, but that's okay, because it's not endangered. But if it continue to take fish out at a rate greater than it can replenish, then eventually the fishery will be collapse, fishery will collapse. There won't be any left. That's a metaphor for the purpose for our purposes it's a pretty good metaphor actually so we want to think of it that way. So you can have demand exceed supply for a while and that's what we've been doing but you keep on doing it and increasing it more and more and more and more then you're in trouble and we are in trouble. That's what the review shows
1: So Gretchen t- turning to you I mean one of the arguments historically made, by people who are sceptical about notions of social justice, is to say we should focus on making the cake bigger, not on the sizes of the slices of the cake. And it seems to me this is where notions of planetary limits become very important because what they say is that the project of dealing with issues of justice by making the cake bigger uh, it is ultimately unsustainable because the cake cannot keep growing because if it does, <laughs> consequences for the planet will be catastrophic so just tell us you know in terms of your work with stanford natural capital project this relationship between kind of planetary limits and also also notions of addressing impact inequality the relationship between
3: them
2: yeah thank you the the questions you're bringing up are are really key and they are really challenging um and i think uh some of the solutions finding out um practical pathways for securing nature, for securing um, human well-being within it, um, are really well illuminated, especially by small countries. So a lot of the principles that Partha is talking about um, have been um, illustrated and confronted really in policy shifts by smaller countries that have then um, inspired a lot of other places so of course all countries want to develop and that's what you mean by enlarging the cake in a way there's more for the people living in a place Um, but this can come at tremendous cost if we're um, driving development through the destruction of nature and one country that stands out, and actually, as a poster child in this, is Costa Rica. Back in the 1990s, it had the highest tropical deforestation rate ever seen in history. And it was um, leading to tremendous problems, even within the country, a greater uh, risk of flooding, of um, declining. Um, security in other dimensions. For example, uh, much of the country actually depends generally on, on tourism as a major part of the economy, but it also depends on um, that forest for supplying water, which is a core um, engine of the energy supply in Costa Rica, most of it by hydropower. So the country leaders recognize. Actually, one of them um, got a master's in economics and then a PhD in hydrology, Alvaro Mania, and he recognized, among many other of the leaders, the country's utter dependence on rainforest for many different types of benefits, even though they hadn't been um, you know, perfectly illuminated yet in scientific terms. It was easy growing up there to see how much farmers depended on forest for pollinators, for pest control by bats and birds, how much um, local people depended on forest for clean water. And often that wasn't piped, but you know, most people in the world depend on nature, whether they have piped water or not, ultimately for delivering high quality water into whatever water supply systems people have. So he recognized that trees would be worth much more standing than cut if we factored in our, all dimensions of our dependence on trees and not, not only on their utility you know, in building a home or you know, selling off to another country um, for a beautiful piece of furniture and, and that kind of thing that was driving a lot of the deforestation. So Costa Rica managed to turn this around with Alvaro Mania saying, you know, we need to start paying people to protect and restore forest, given its importance for um, maintaining all these vital benefits. And he actually went um, and negotiated deals basically with how this initially got set up, saying we're going to recognize in Costa Rica. A value and pay you if you're a farmer um, it was about I think um, $20 per acre per year to restore or protect rainforest and there was a the worry that you know not many people would sign up but that at least they'd get the system up and running because as Jane says it's really hard to shift systems and get um, just kind of used to a new way of thinking and operating, but enough people signed up actually that the system was you know, overwhelmed by uh, demand. Many people saying, I want to restore this part of my um, little patch of farm. And so the government together with uh, the World Bank, together with a number of European nations, got investments in this program, this payment, for ecosystem services program that recognized the benefits of nature for securing the climate locally, cooling a farm and making it more livable and more productive globally by storing carbon, recognize the value of rainforest and um, securing landscapes above hydropower facilities, preventing erosion and preventing rapid you know, sedimentation behind dams and also um, maintaining an even water supply throughout the year, whereas the rain comes very intensely at certain times. So that's how forest is crucial for maintaining hydropower production, about 90% of the country's electricity supply. And there were many, many other benefits that were hard to articulate fully, but that people growing up in a place with the beauty of Costa Rica could appreciate and did have a deep appreciation of, and it shows how um, actually easy it was to bring people into this, where there was an alignment of short-term sort of economic necessity at the household level, people of alignment with the, that and society and sort of nature were all together, part of the same web of life, where all of that was aligned, everyone joined in and that has basically led to Costa Rica becoming um, now a poster child for green and inclusive growth. Everyone was offered the chance to participate in this scheme um, and their participation has led to one of the highest reforestation rates in the world. And the current leadership in Costa Rica has gone all in and is saying, you know, we're going to be among the first countries to decarbonize completely and to recognize the values of nature in all of our systems of decision making and make it possible for people to make their living while protecting nature so that there isn't that contradiction that we often face in the way governance um, And economics plays out today for people in in day-to-day choices. So that example from Costa Rica has now been replicated over much of the world. And what the conversation is about is trying to um, enable ever more places to ever more completely embrace valuing nature, often in deep cultural ways, as well as in these um, very kind of practical and material ways of say drinking water quality and health and um, security and farm uh, livelihoods and productivity in our own nutrition and in um, just making livelihood options that aren't compromised by embracing nature and nature conservation as part of the livelihood. So this this actually has taken off. And um, in most countries, there's some effort today to incorporate the values of nature into planning, into policy, and into um, financial investments. And the big challenge for us actually is to scale this up. The, the idea is there and this seed that's been planted in many places is now germinating and taking hold. And I think the challenge now is to um, close this gap that Parth is talking about between demand and supply much more rapidly than we're doing at the moment. And maybe um, Jane can tell us more about what's going on in Wales or more broadly in, in those policy realms.
1: Yeah, so Jane, turning to you, I, I'm sure you would love Wales to be known as the kind of Costa Rica of the Northern Hemisphere. And it's got amazing coastline, amazing natural assets. It's also a country that is committed to social justice. Tell me what you see as being the kind of critical determinants of if of whether Wales can follow that path of, of Costa Rica. And, and talk particularly, Jane, if you can about the notion of regenerative systems, a phrase we use a lot at the RSA, so economic systems which don't only minimise damage, but actually regenerate nature.
3: I, I think one of the, um, uh, the critical things here, and it was so interesting listening to you Gretchen talking about the experience of um, Costa Rica, um, is that different governments have continued to support this. Um, since the 1990s so that it actually was done with the support of the population and the population saw the benefit and therefore were uh, able to further engage in it. And I think we're on a very early trajectory on that in Wales. Um, it would be fair to say that by having a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act that recognises environmental limits, that, that now determines that um, investment has to be low carbon Um, uh, and and having those sorts of elements in the legislation uh, has now meant that Wales is probably sitting on its own as a country in the world which has uh, passed legislation that enables it to deliver on the sustainable development goals, for example. So although 193 countries signed up and Wales isn't even a member state in that sense, Uh, actually having a legislative programme that reframes the argument. And I think what I thought was so interesting, um, uh, Partha, in your report, was when you're talking about some of the attitudes that you need in terms of this change of delivery, um, Wales has not only enshrined a set of goals in terms of delivery mechanisms, um, it is also enshrined in many ways, I think more importantly, five ways of working. The organizations receiving money from government have to think long term. They have to think preventatively. Um, they have to involve people about whom decisions are being made. They have to collaborate with each other. Um, and they have to integrate the outcomes. Now, that in itself requires. It, Very new ways of working, although these kinds of recommendations for good practice in decision making have been coming out of organisations like the OECD for years. So there's a sort of experiment going on. And in many ways, one of the most exciting things about it, because for those on the on, on, on the call who know nothing about Wales, um, the poorest part of the UK, but right at the heart of the Industrial Revolution uh, has meant that Wales has had its wealth extracted, <laughs> whether or not it was copper or steel or iron or slate uh, or, of course, the big one, coal. And what that has meant is that Wales has small communities completely left behind when the extractors moved on, but it was extracted in financial value by people outside Wales. And one of the most exciting initiatives, which I think in some ways is, is, um, uh, you know, if if it can come off, will, will be of huge importance in terms of giving people comfort, is in three of those South Wales valleys um, where those communities have have, have been left behind by successive governments following the closure of the mines in 1984. Um, And although governments have always tried to do things to support those communities, of course, the very terrain, the distance from the centre, uh, the smallness of the communities, the perhaps um, lack of education post-school, all those issues mitigated against it. But three towns in those communities are currently working on a project called Skyline, where they have identified whole new green industries linked to their skyline. And they are bidding to have the land around them granted to them in perpetuity if they deliver new propositions uh, according to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And I think that if that happens, that will be incredibly exciting because often when we hear people talking about the potential of numbers of jobs in green skills, there's an element of, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because they come from the environmental sector. So the, But the very idea of actually working with nature to deliver all those outcomes, Gretchen, you've described, in terms of the benefit to these steep valleys are prone to flooding. Um, They have been forested, but they've been monoculture forested, etc. So all sorts of ways in which they can achieve different kinds of benefit from working with nature in different kinds of ways. And I think the second point is just that oddly enough, um, even in a country which is famous for, a small country famous for its beauty, and we have the first area of outstanding natural beauty in the UK. We have a number of national parks, Matthew, I'm sure you've been to them. But I remember when I first became minister, there was an application to create um, a national park in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the kind of big central absent belt in Wales, the peat bogs on the hills. Um, and there was enormous amounts of objections from farmers because they felt it would get in the way of their farming practice. And it was extractive farming practice. And interesting enough, I think that the, um, the the first minister learned something from this. So when he proposed a new national forest in Wales a few years ago, he didn't say it would be in an individual location. But his forest is going to join the north and south Wales. It's about... Who wants to be part of this big vision of where you can bring together community woodlands and others to join Wales up? And in doing so, create new kinds of wildlife corridors. The enthusiasm for this idea is absolutely enormous. (laughs) So I think that there there has to be ways in which this revaluing whereby there is a major government role. I mean, unless government engages with this agenda, it will not happen. And I would like to hear from Partha about how he feels that is happening in the context of the two big cops this year. But if unless government engages, it will not happen other than at an individual or community level who will always feel that they're fighting against the barriers. But the permission to think differently that has happened as a result of having the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act means people are literally going to their public services and saying, you're not behaving properly. You should be doing it differently. Much as Client Earth, I don't know whether you've all read this, has announced today it's going to take the European Central Bank to court because it's still funding polluters rather than engaging in the Paris principle. So I wondered, Partha, whether your report had anything to do with that.
1: Um, there's, look, there's so much to talk about. And sadly, we're, we're, we're moving towards the end of our time. So I, I just want a slight shift for the final set of questions in these in these few minutes that we've got left. Um, and again, once more, I would say do read the desk to a report or the the 100 page summary of it. and And we've only touched on certain elements of it. But I want to just talk for a moment about the differences between the climate change narrative and the biodiversity uh, narrative. Um, and and Partha, if I might start with you, because th- there is an argument. And I interviewed Jonathan Franson, the American uh, novelist, about this recently. He, he's very passionate about it. He he doesn't want to talk about climate change at all. He says that the the the, the the credibility of the climate change narrative is gone, that people said 10 years ago, we had 10 years to save the earth, earth." they're still saying we've got 10 years to go. It's all too abstract and impossible. We'll never wean ourselves off economic growth. And instead he says, let's focus on what we can do. Let's focus on the the birds whose habitat we can save. Let's focus on the local woods or the forest. Let's, Let's do what we can in a way that feels more concrete, more tangible, more real. And there is something different, isn't there, about the way in which these two narratives think about the world. And of course, they're complementary. But I wonder whether in certain senses, just as we need multiple interventions to solve any problem, that we need a slightly different way of thinking about the biodiversity challenge from the, the kind of very big way in which we talk about climate change, a narrative where in the end, any individual feels terribly insignificant. Partha, what do you think of that? (laughs) Well, wow. <laughs> it's hard to know how to respond. The
0: first comment I'd make is the uh, question that Jane both pointed to come back to an earlier, previous question of yours. We're using the language of prices. How to make these activities worth it. Huh. And there's payments for ecosystem services. It requires enormous amount of cooperation because you're imposing prices in a world in which they don't have a price because there are no markets. That's the problem. And that's exactly right. And I was also moved by the fact that both Gretchen and Jane spoke about small countries. And that's exactly right. We should start in the small and then move out in our conceptual, uh, in our framing of problems to to larger ones. And I'll come, come, come back to that in a second. Uh, the smallest would be, of course, a village community. And a good deal of the review addresses uh, communities in Sub Saharan Africa, South Asia, farming communities, subsistence, where there's an intricate set of rules and regulations regarding management of the woodlands, water sources, and so forth that there. And we ought to take uh, um, to take instructions from what has succeeded and what happened. When they have failed, why have they failed? When they've been successful, why have they been successful? So the review goes into that in some detail. But I want to expand it a little bit. The nearness of the resource does allow you to have an emotional attachment. You can see the thing. You can see the woods disappearing, okay? Now think in the large of, and what makes me feel on, certainly on, let's say midweek each week, somewhat pessimistic is when I think about the large swaths of open access resources. I'm thinking now about the atmosphere as a dumping ground for pollutants. I'm thinking of the open oceans, open seas, which we use for transportation, which we use for fishing, uh, and which, heaven knows, we're now thinking of even digging for metals from the seafloor. And then I think about the rainforests, of which Costa Rica has just a tiny bit large swaths of rainforests, which are within national ju- jurisdiction. And yet they're, of course, global public goods because they're supplying everybody with benefits. Managing that is going to be hard. Think of it. The open oceans are free. Anybody can, if he has the money, a sail over it, crossing. It. All that stuff that we uh, transport. We're doing it without paying anybody a rent for the use of the sea as a transport corridor. And of course, it's creating damage. It's damaging. We are fishing there, and yet nobody charges a rent for the fish that is removed uh, from the sea, oceans. That, of course, means if the oceans are cheap, other things remaining the same, and so we overexploit it, and that's a harbinger of serious difficulties that lie ahead. And extending the idea of local communities having collective decisions. The review, at least in the review, I explored the idea of following like the Marshall Plan and bold moves that the international community made at the end of the Second World War uh, to create, to supply public goods, such as the World Bank does, which is over development and reconstruction. The IMF does in terms of financial security, uh, global financial security. Uh, These are global public goods and it required enormous imagination to create them. Why don't we have similar institutions to monitor, manage, charge for? And remember, we'll be collecting huge amount of revenue there. If you charge for transportation across the oceans, the cruises we take, I don't mean paying the company, for, I'm talking about the use of the ocean. Then there'd be huge rents, which we can use for all sorts of things, reforestation, you name it. Uh, so We haven't gone that way in that route over climate change because instead of thinking of collective action expressed through an international organization, we have nations coming to agreements about limiting their emissions and uh, non-binding, and it hasn't really been very successful. So I worry midweek about the global ones. The local ones, I completely share, Gretchen's and Jane's um, optimism and actually, it's a feeling of um, triumph, actually, that we can collab- collaborate and
1: cooperate to make our neighbourhood better than it used to be. Gretchen, we, as I say, we're running out of time, but I wonder whether you've got a, a perspective on this, this kind of balance of the way in which we think about the climate change challenge and the way in which we think about diverse, biodiversity, and the, the different ways in which we emotionally engage relate to these ideas.
2: Um, Well, I certainly agree with uh, what you're saying, and it's a tough sell to be thinking so far into the future, given the way um, we are by nature, typically more, you know, focused on the here and now. So climate, addressing climate change is inherently um, a difficult um, sell. But by contrast, um, investing in nature which is a crucial part of the um, shift that we need to make to secure the climate as well as to secure all these other aspects of well-being. That we can really see the benefits of in the here and now and in, in our immediate backyard. So there's a huge amount we can do thinking about um, nature experience in cities so many of us live in towns or cities today and we're basically nature deprived if you look at i'll give a couple of quick examples Um, school kids some of these studies done in finland um, going to school or daycare in a place that has mostly a concrete play area if you add just tiny elements of nature to that concrete play area like a little planting box or they moved a square meter of forest floor or a third thing was to bring in a log from the forest you get a measurable and um, quite dramatic improvement in the immune function of the kids within six weeks of just having introduced those tiny elements of nature and we can carry from that idea to many other realms in which enhancing nature experience in cities where we're ever more starved of nature exposure and interaction, whether through the beauty of it visually or the sound or even what we breathe in in the air is thought in um, all these different pathways to improve cognitive functioning and emotional well-being. So that's one example where were we to take this more to heart, become more systematic about valuing nature for the many benefits that supplies in our day-to-day lives, there's a long way we can go. Um, and then when it comes to the bigger problem of scaling up, we absolutely need to be um, looking at that now and accelerating the rate of uptake of these types of ways of thinking and um, mechanisms for making it possible for everybody to participate through policy or financial incentives that kind of align um, the outcomes we want with our immediate um, needs. A good example there, um, there's a couple. One is uh, the country of China having really tasted disaster literally through poisoning of land and water on a scale kind of not seen across most of the planet and having experienced some of the worst costs of losing nature, such as uh, the worst flooding in human history Uh, back in 1998. China has gone farther than any other country in embracing these approaches in pursuing what they call an ecological civilization. And they've actually zoned about 50% of the country for restoration and conservation of nature. And they're using a new metric, getting to GDP and um, whether Jane's, we'd be better off if Jane's house burned down at night um, to boost the local GDP and how I missed guided, uh, you know, we can be in pursuing that one metric as a measure of progress. China has put forth together with the natural capital project and and many partners refining this approach, a new metric called gross ecosystem product that accounts for all of the goods, the stream of goods and services that come from nature. And this is now really informing policy in China Revealing the contributions of nature to people at local scales in the different um, realms of Wales that Jane is talking about. We could um, be guiding um, decision making with this way of tracking how well we're doing and securing the natural, the nature that underpins the production of all the goods and services. Um, GEP is also being used to guide investments. So about 200 million people are being paid today in China to restore nature, by more downstream or downwind or down in the supply chain um, communities of people that benefit from nature. And thirdly, um, it's a metric being used just to track progress. And benchmark how well the country is doing through time and whether these policies and the leaders meant to oversee them, whether they're functioning well. And just three weeks ago, GEP was blessed by the UN Statistical Commission as a metric for global adoption to help us all see across all countries and across the planet how and where to invest in nature, how to align those investments with improved livelihoods, particularly in rural areas that often are left behind in the way Jane was describing for Wales, to recognize the vital role that everyone can play in securing the future in the way we all need. And um, since that announcement the major development banks with whom we work that together um, invest, it's over a hundred billion dollars per year in notions of human development. So the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank and others have gotten on board and all of their member countries are sort of raising their hand and saying, we want to learn how to implement these approaches We want GEP as a metric to guide policy planning and finance in our own country. So it makes me hopeful that we are coming to a point where we can bring the beauty of the ways in which we've thought about nature in the past more through um, philosophy and religion, poetry, bring those ways of appreciating nature into the real um, hardcore decision-making that is determining the path we're on and and bring those into alignment um, well before it's too late. So thank you very much for this chance to talk together.
1: Jane, we're well over time, so I'll ask you to, 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 to find a brief way of, of, of answering this question, which is, in a sense, you know, we've seen resistance to arguments around climate change, possibly not about the argument, but about the way in which policies have been pursued. We saw that in France, for example, uh, with the Gilets Jeunes movement. As someone who was a a politician, how do we best make these arguments? I remember Chris Smith many years ago at the RSA, former chair of RSPB and of the Environment Agency, saying, He'd seen the process, people will fall in love with a bird, and then they understand that the bird is endangered, which means they get to understand the bird's environment, which means they get to understand ecology, and through this process, they gradually become fully aware of the environmental challenge. What is the way in which we can most get people to share the enthusiasm we have and hope that we have for this project?
3: Um, I think I think that is such an important way to put it, um, because... My favourite, my very favourite headline ever in my life as a um, as a cabinet minister in in the Welsh Government was as education minister when my headline was Minister makes children play in the rain. (laughs) And I did so proudly. I think the press came along thinking I I I would say that wasn't the case. But the point is that what we had deliberately done was in our early years curriculum, we we require children to spend time outside in nature. And in fact, there is a whole environmental awareness as part of the curriculum, something I think that you're you're both... Uh, interested in here and that does mean that children get to love the bird and it meant I got to learn to love the the birds when I was young and I wanted to bring that into something which I felt was being lost as parents became more scared about freeing up their children to go off on my adventurous rides that I used to have as a child so there is a reconnection Of families and children in particular in nature that I think is critical and I absolutely endorse Partha's um, support for tackling this in the curriculum and the new curriculum Wales takes that as one of the areas of learning that will be delivered by 2022 so I'm really excited that that whole narrative about that outside growing gardens and everything else But that's just part of this bigger picture. I know that Partha uh, uh, has been influenced by John Rawls, as I have. And I just think that that message about do unto future generations what you would have had the past do unto you should be sitting on every politician's desk And we've known for more than one generation of both the biodiversity and climate problems. And what we absolutely must do to now is not see them as separate. We have to join these in governance terms. And we, the people, the concerned citizens, have to make demands of our governments. And my demand of the UK government is to deliver Partha's report in full.
1: What a great way to end. Uh, Thank you, Partha, Gretchen, uh, Jane, for taking time to talk to me. It's been fascinating to delve into some of the ideas in the review and beyond that. And I think the one thing we can all agree is that 2021 is going to be an absolutely vital year if we're going to shift through the gears and do what we need to do to address the challenges of both climate change and biodiversity. To those of you watching, I hope our conversation has given you plenty to think about for Earth Day and beyond. Do look at the Dasgupta review, as I've said on several occasions, we've just touched on the surface of an incredibly rich piece um, of work. And if you want to take uh, further the idea of a systematic approach to tackling our big environmental challenges, do take a look at the RSA's Regenerative Futures Programme, which is on our website. All that's left from me is to say thank you again to Sir Partha Jane Davidson and Gretchen Daly. And thank you all for watching.
3: Thanks
2: for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.